whoever wins, at least like in my part of the universe, is whoever is the most focused. And focus is very difficult because focus is all about saying no. And it's so damn difficult to say no. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about something I can't believe we haven't talked about, and it is your go-to-market strategy. And who better to have on that than the author of the book around the go-to-market strategy, my, my friend Maja, as she calls herself my crazy friend from Europe. We co-hosted the Growth Hackers Conference together. I've known her for a while. And she's been working on a book that I'm excited to dive into myself and to share today. So if you're at all interested in launching a product, relaunching a product, or figuring out how you go from zero to one, I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So she talks about, okay, what does it mean to go to market? Having this new market to see if they want the product or service that you offer. She talks about you know taking a military approach to planning prep preparation in execution. And it's it's really interesting because she doesn't talk about doing a spray and pray approach to go to market. Instead, this beachhead strategy, which for me was really interesting to hear that approach. She talks about how to interview customers, do discovery, and then when to go for the actual conversion with your go to market strategy. She also hits on the concepts around demand capture and demand generation and what is right for you in the early days. And so this one's really packed with a lot of tactics and frameworks when thinking through launching a product, relaunching a product. I actually got a lot out of it and I think you will today. We even had on some cool examples of B2B companies and B2C companies that did this extremely well. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. All right. Today on the podcast, I have my crazy friend from Europe, Waja. No, that's that's what she was playfully saying beforehand. But no, this is someone, it's it's her second time on the podcast, which is exciting. But this has been a long time coming. She's been working on a book around go to market and it's coming out. Shoot, by the time this podcast is live, I think it might be out there. But it's super timely because I get this question so much on like, hey, I've got an idea what the heck do I do next? And, you know, we're going to kind of go deep on that. So if that's what you want to learn about and get into, grab your coffee, stay tuned. Let's do it. Bamaja, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. It's always a pleasure to be uh, talking to you. But in order to just like clarify what go-to-market is, so it's about tackling whether an unknown segment to you or launching a new product or just like relaunching it sometimes if we didn't do a very good job at the first time that we were doing it. So I don't necessarily think that launch and GTM are the same thing, but I very, very much like this notion of how we are tackling unknown problems, right? Because if you have your standard operating procedure of how you want to launch things, that's fine. And there are any ambiguities almost. But when you are tackling something unknown, there is a lot of research and a lot of fascinating discoveries that you will be making on the journey. So I don't know what's your take on GTM, but that was mine. 
Wow. So that's something we were talking about before. He's like, let's define it. I think you just changed my definition because I think it's easy to be like, go to market, launch, same thing, right? But what you're saying is like, no, no, no. It's like, this is an unproven segment. It's a new market you're going after. And it doesn't have to be for a new product. It could be for a product that doesn't exist or it's the relaunch of a product. And to be very candid, we'll be coming out in the next few weeks with a company that, that we just acquired and we're kind of relaunching it. So what you're saying is like super timely because I didn't think of it that way because we're like, how do we do a relaunch? But I, but I appreciate you defining it. You've actually redefined it for me. So thank you. Where do we start, right? Walk me through how you approach it because that is intimidating and daunting to try and go down this path. Yeah, is it? I think it's just <laughs> like doing whatever. It's freaking mission critical in order to get the job done. But look, let's maybe... Just like lay another concept, which we probably all know, but for those two listeners that might don't, Rogers Belf Curve of Innovation, right? So there is always this very early segment of early adopters. So the ones that are into tech and will buy anything that shines and they love to be the first ones that are having something. Then like slowly you are coming towards other segments like First, you have early adopters, then you are kind of like transmissioning towards like early majority, but there is this huge gap before you win the main market, the mainstream market. And especially all the listeners and you, Jim, as well, as you do a lot of work in e-commerce, you know that it is a numbers game, right? Because if you're selling something for 50 or 100 bucks, you need mass, you need volume in order to make it happen. So if you are selling this to your neighbors and to your mother, it's not necessarily going to make checks, right? So the thing is that apart from doing those like really scrappy things that we do at the beginning, for example, posting in Facebook groups or shit posting on Reddit or doing product ad launches, we need to find a scalable system of how we will sustainably make money. And here is the beauty behind it, because GTM also covers this pre-product market fit. And what the hell is she talking about? So market fit is this wonderful moment in time and place where you have this segment with specific pains and with specific needs and a perfect solution to cater it. Because product at the end of the day is just like a medium of value transfer. But at the same time, especially if we are bootstrapping, we also have to test the willingness to pay. Because why does this matter in the first place is because, you know, people can say to you on the survey or on a waiting list that, yeah, I could have this, like it's possible. But the other question is if they're going to pull up the credit card and make the purchase. And you don't necessarily want to rely the future of your business into people saying, OK, that might work for me. Uh, so I very much believe in testing business model at the same time as you are testing just like the value proposition of the product. That, that's such a good point. We we do some stuff with like startup accelerators and they're like, oh, we need to validate our idea. And you're like, OK, the first thing to decide is like, what's that metric for success? Is it a lead sign up? Is it an email form? Is it testing the product for free or are they going to get out the credit card and swipe it, right? Because I think you and I both agree that's the ultimate sign of traction is definitely like, take my money. This is this is so good. No, definitely. And I just had like this example nine days ago. So a team that I'm working with was applying for Y Combinator. And they came to me, of course, eight days before the launch and say, Maya, we need 500 signups for the launch. <laughs> and we are running a bunch of LinkedIn ads in order to make it happen. And I was like, OK, cool, guys. How is it? 
like converting uh, for that for you. And they were like, not so good, not so good. We still need like 400 more registration. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's go where the audience already is and just like try to do warm outreach and use other channels in order to make this happen. Because yeah, we could go on Fiverr and of course we could get them like additional 400 sheet leads, but that wouldn't do anything to their business, right? So we still have to keep a very close proximity to the type of people that will actually pay for this because otherwise it would be just number of them pitch deck, right? It's not going to be a part that would significantly participate to their business model. Yeah, and you hit on a good point because around like where to start, you, you mentioned like, okay, what does success mean? We need to go for a transaction if this is going to work. The other thing you hit on that's really important is what personas you're focusing on with this go-to-market strategy? Because usually, like you said, it's the early adopters or the fast followers. And like one thing we've seen is those people, you need to really know the nuance of the language in which you speak to them. Because if you get that down, it is an unlock and you can do something huge. And we've there's a cool framework Derek Halpern said around I think you and I talked about this, right? Oh, Where we did. Oh, we did. I almost had it in my book before my editor said you're going to be sued if you publish this. So just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to steal sometimes. You can give them credit in the footnotes. But yeah, the, the early adopters, you speak to them on features and benefits because they're in the nerd, they're in the weeds. They're nerds for what you want to have. So you can talk to them that technical language, whereas the, the fast followers, they're the ones that have a problem. You speak to them problem solution oriented because... It's so funny. I feel like people will quickly bypass the value prop and how to speak to this customer and know the problem because, hey, let me throw money at LinkedIn ads or Facebook ads or Google ads and then cross my fingers. Now you got to you gotta roll up your sleeves and do the hard work, right? And so I, I totally am aligned with what you're saying there. Like know your persona, know your metric of success, but like keep walking us through like, okay, GTM, I understand the definition now, metric for success, how well should people be thinking through approaching that go-to-market strategy? So, look, I'm a very pragmatic and simplistic thinker. So I always say, don't overthink it. Just freaking do it and learn from your mistakes and have this double loop of experimentation and custom discovery always at the place. But at the same time, we're trying to be smart. And since we are operating with very limited resources most of the time, it's also very important to choose the terrain where you actually have a fighting chance to win, right? And here I was supremely delighted with this concept of beachhead strategy. What the hell does that mean? So the thing is that, you know, in World War II, the Allies won France and eventually the entire Europe by attacking one beach after another throughout the France. And what was really important there was that it was not like this beach is here on the north and that beach is on the south, but that these efforts were compounding. And this is like the entire logic, the entire theory behind like beachhead segments and beachhead strategies, because you know how it is, those graphics, if you disperse your focus and your energy and your resources into multiple directions, you won't go that far as if you would be centering towards a single object. Right. And I always say that objective is a compass. Objective is our North Star in what we are doing in GTM. But it's very important that we pursue the right segment at the same time. And segmentation can be such a bullshit. 
I have this graphic that like Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne are literally like the same person because they were all born in England and I they love live that in a castle. Yes. <laughs> I know it's 15 years old, but it still proves the point so yeah. well. So just like doing segmentation based on some demographics, apart from like in B2C, if you are selling to like men with oily hair or like to the friend woman, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So there are four criteria that you need to score in order to select like a good beachhead segment. The first one is just like making sure that they have a burning pain point so that they won't be thinking like, oh, cool, maybe we can squeeze you in the budget for next year or I don't want to purchase from you today. Maybe I will think about this again in a week and they will never do. So just like this pressing pain point is supremely important. The second one is willingness to pay. We have talked about this previously and it's just like, you know, if they have the purchasing power in order to make the transaction and they are really the decision makers. Then we have the third one, which is really interesting and we can go into that more later, but in GTM, we usually cannot really buy all our audience. So it becomes increasingly important that we have a type of audience that refers to each other, that there is like some sort of a growth loop or a little bit of recommendation lever that this is like working if you put $1 in that you get 2 or $3 out. So this leverage is extremely important. And last but not least, you have to have the access towards this target audience right and i do think this is a highly personal aspect because look i don't know what are your biases but for example i could never ever ever sell successfully to vegans because i'm not into this culture i'm low carb i'm very like into a different sphere of life and this is not just not the life that i live in these are not the influencers that i follow this is not just like the lifestyle that would be very near and dear to me and I am not that much knowledgeable about this and everything that is cool so I do think that this proximity to the segment of whoever is making this GTM matters as well it could be described as a joy level aka but I just think like do you have 50 people in your phone book that you could interview or just like make early sales to if uh, you would be putting me into some cement company or just like other weird verticals that I have absolutely no proximity in, I wouldn't try. I couldn't deliver and I would probably personally refuse this business. Okay, this is really good. And one thing on the beachhead strategy, you said something that's really important that I want to call out is a lot of times when we're launching, we have not the most amount of resources. We're limited, so we have to be efficient. And that's why the beachhead strategy could work, which is like, exactly. okay, go where there's a burning pain point go where there's a willingness to pay. You hit on getting that recommendation or referral lever, right? Where your customers turn into marketers. And then finally, it's like, do you have access or pro proximity to the segment? So it makes it easy for you. If you hit those four things, it's like, okay, you're, you're on to something. And I, I think that's something that as we get intimidated by GTM and what to do, I, I really like this, this beachhead strategy where where have people gone wrong when maybe approaching this or what are some like tips when thinking through this? Okay, there are a couple of biases why making these trade-offs is a very challenging task for a founder, right? Because nobody ever went to business in order to cater a segment of 60 people in the UK hospitals that would happen to do their product. Just like our vision is usually world domination and we would like to satisfy as much people as possible. 
But as you are very scrappy on the resources, you have to come at peace with a conclusion that you are not a Nutella and not everybody's going to love you. So just like choose the people that will love you at first, and then you can spread into adjacent segments that will love you further. And that's very, very, very important in terms of focus. The second thing is just like this logic of trade-offs, right? Because in investment, for example, it would be very logical to diversify on your risk. So you wouldn't want to invest all your efforts into this single point because you would like to be diversified. But that doesn't apply if you are like a startup because there will be somebody who will be faster, better, and just like more agile, who will maybe have more resources and you will not win this game. So whoever wins, at least like in my part of the universe, is whoever is the most focused. And focus is very difficult for the first reason, because focus, aka allegedly Steve Jobs, is all about saying no. And it's so damn difficult to say no, as you are surrounded with shiny opportunities, and there is this AI thing, and there is this programmatic whatever thing, and you know, it's very hard to stick to a plan and not do these deviations. So... I do think that mentally, as well as just like in terms of making smart business calls, this is not like the most intuitive thing that people would initially embrace. But nevertheless, it's really important and it's a muscle that you train, like every other thing, right? Saying no, just like making sure that you stick to the plan. And here is like the rule of thumb that I usually talk about with my teams is that 80% you are doing the things that are mission critical, verified channels, things that work, things that have proven to work before. And nine, like in the other 10 or 20%, you could be playing around, you could be experimenting, you could be like pursuing moonshots if you want, because this is how progress is made. So focus is a moving target, I think. I love that you say that because I think we can be really hard on ourselves where it's like, as a founder, I can look like I'm all over the place. And yes, that's probably true, but it is a moving target as, as you get more insights, customer feedback, as the landscape moves. And and I think that's okay. Maybe as you always come back to center and, and aligned. I don't know if this is a natural segue, but as you hit on the beachhead strategy, I'm also interested in this kind of approach you have that talks around the planning part of all of this. And so I'd be interested in going through that framework where it's like the planning, the preparation and the execution, because, you know, I I think, you know, the right strategy versus the perfect strategy is key, but we also want to have like a bias towards execution and speed as opposed to trying to make that perfect plan. Oh, Jim, you got me to a very slippery slope here. So I will be tried very correct and to give you the best answers that I could possibly have. So when I was studying this strategic part, strategy is relatively simple, right? So you are playing on your strengths and you are trying to exploit enemies' weaknesses. And you know where this is coming from? From the military strategy. Surprise, surprise, military strategy has outdated business strategies for a couple of thousands of years. And it's just like, you know, Sun Tzu, all the other stuff. It has passed the time of test. I know it's not a very popular mentality right now, but this is where I found like a lot of inspiration of what we are doing. Because, you know, if you are like this GTM company and you feel that everything around you is burning and you're trying to be okay, you are under tremendous amount of stress and it's 
makes your heart pumping and it makes you sweat and it's like it's very difficult to think clearly. So instead of like following this typical Harvard Business Review advice and, you know, all the traditional MIT literature, I found a lot of inspiration in military special ops. And here, what is really, really important is that good GTM strategy is not like a 90-day plan towards doing something or a 50-page slide deck or something like that. It is a simple plan that each and every one of your team members embraces knows how to say it in their own words and that they have absolutely accountability towards. So first of all, it should be simple and have a perfect bite. The second layer that is maybe like even more controversial is that we need to secure it. Because at the beginning of GTM, you know, it's more like David against Goliath. So as a company who's new to market and maybe like in cosmetic industry, you have maybe a budget of 50K and you are competing against L'Oreal and like the other giants. So you are literally a shrimp and you can never outspend, right? It's just mission impossible. So you need to be different. You need to be subversive and you need to be like a little bit under the radar. So you need to cut them by surprise on a territory that they wouldn't necessarily pursue. And then just like the third layer of this is repetition. And repetition is so important because you can like totally run out of motivation, but having the discipline, having the routine, having the muscle to show up and do it again and again until you can like be perfect and have fast iteration makes you supremely strong. And just like in terms of execution, I don't think that I'm saying anything new here, but you have to be quick, you have to be agile and the strategy is changing all the time as are your certain senses because strategy at the end of the day is an intelligence response to the certain senses that are changing all the time in GTM. I, I love the military approach. I love that you're kind yeah. of referencing well, art, art of to war. present it to you. <laughs> no, 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 I think it's genius. And I, I think there's so much that can be learned from that. Being quick in your battle plans, like rethinking how to go after a big incumbent and like use their slow speed as 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 a weakness to them and a strength to you. Because um, what one thing that I'm thinking through as you're talking is this idea of speed because Yes, let's say your third love going after Victoria's Secret or your Harry's in the early days going after Gillette. You have so many disadvantages. You don't have the money, you don't have the resources, you don't have the brand recognition, but you can move fast and you can compete on their weaknesses because guess what? There's this huge data set that says, I don't like the Gillette experience of buying at Rite Aid or it's too expensive or with third love going after Victoria's Secret, Victoria's Secret, they know they have issues with fit. So the, the thing is, you know, like where their warts are, you know, where they're weak and that's where you can like slowly come and take market share and then expand, right? Because they're exposed, they, they, they have that. And you, you say speed and some people are like, okay, yeah, move quickly or like work hard. I, I would push back on that. Like, yes, you need to do that. But I call it like iceberg marketing, where what are you doing that's above the surface that people see versus what's below the water that people don't see? Because people can be like, oh, I'm working hard, I'm moving fast, but they're just like doing the 90th version of their homepage that nobody sees. It's like, put something out there every week, you know, do something and iterate on it. But no, this this is really resonating. No, but Jim, let's talk about this as business owners, because before we started to record this podcast, I was just like on a crisis meeting with my communication team. And, you know, 
things change on a daily basis. So yesterday we were really happy because we got 60, uh, 600 likes on LinkedIn and it went viral and we were over the moon. And as we were posting today, like the design was off and I was just like phoning people at freaking 8 a.m. I won't be publishing this. It is the world class competition. This is like sub hour quality standards who, who approved that. And we did realize that nobody approved this. So we had to have a crisis meeting today of how our process looks like. And, you know, it's a roller coaster. Like one day everything can be perfect and then you find a little problem. And I do believe in our communication and radical transparency without finger pointing, without blaming everybody. Because yeah. this is how I feel like a leader. I do feel that everything is my fault because I totally. hire those people. I brief those people. I set up the processes. So whatever was a fuck up, it's my fuck up. I, I totally agree. Like, because I think early in my career, the, the fingers pointing out, but now it's like, okay, this is definitely my fault on like the process of the hiring or not giving them enough context. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah and the, yeah, and it takes a while to come around to that. And it's a, and not to like nerd out on process and systems, but as far as like moving quickly. Oh, that's your like, passion. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, how do you run your, your weekly standups or daily standups or Slack? So it can align with this speed. But no, I, I think that's, that that's super exciting around first. I love the military approach. I love the planning preparation and execution and talking about repetition to work that muscle. Cause it doesn't happen overnight. You do need no. to like work that muscle. And then as we go down, you know, it can be easy. You want to do the spray and pray approach where you're like, no, do this speech head strategy because you don't have to win the whole market. You just need to get 10 customers, 100 customers, 1,000 customers. And that's customers. your 100K just there. Then you can reinvest. At, at, at what number? I would say 100K. 100K could be done by the email or a phone book, but okay, some people don't want to spam their networks or maybe don't have the proximity so they can penetrate like external audiences in order to make this happen. There is no fancy marketing before like this number happens. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. And that's a good point because we all want to do that scalable thing quickly. It's like, it's like you got to do the, the kind of grunt work and you have this really amazing chart that I, I hope we can link this out somewhere on the show notes on basically from just interviewing people to an MVP and what needs to happen along that journey. You've got interviews, surveys, solution testing, market tests, build up a wait list, then pre-sell, then test the MVP. I mean, you have a very methodical approach to it, which I, I really like, right? And so I think that's something that People are like, oh, I don't know if I have something people want. It's like, no, it's like follow this strategy and it will start to reveal itself. And so whenever you're whether you're prototyping or ideating, I, I think that's a really helpful framework that people need to check out. Well, I have a very radical stand up point of view here because I am pre-selling documents for like 50 or even more K by just like pitching a PDF or doing a sales call before the product is ever built. Why? Because you know that in order to invest into a very well done product and you have done with with Handum Chaos, with one day designs, with your agency and everything, there's a lot of work. So before I get like 20 or 30K on the table, I'm not freaking investing my own money in this if the market doesn't want it, because otherwise I would just probably waste six months in order to do this. So just like 
there are two dimensions to the research methodologies. The first one is just like your reality. Whether do you have a product already built? And if you have like a mock-up or if you have like full-fetched MVP, that's something. But if you have an idea concept or just like a couple of visuals that could be give, be presented on a presentation, that's a different story. And there are different research methods that cater those stages, but the devil is in the details. So there is also different proof, different confidence proof. So if people say something, it's less tangible as if they are just like putting the money on the table and buying from you. So there are a couple of different methods and I'm not undermining any one of them because it's done in progression usually, but interviews, come on, everybody could do it. Everybody could talk with like 20 customers and I can guarantee that you will learn a ton. Survey gets a little bit more tricky because here like the laws of statistical significance already hit and you cannot do a really good survey if you cannot harvest a couple of hundred answers, right? This can be like totally random and this uh, piece of evidence will not be repetitive. Then you have a lot, lot of other different methods, but just let me walk you through the most important ones. You can literally make a client pre-pray for something. This is later on created with you, right? So for example, I'm developing these GTM, GTP, ChatGPT prompts that will be used in there. So you're an e-commerce. Could we automate all the email marketing automation for you? So you don't have it ready right now, but you can sell it and then you will do this together and then you can sell it like 50 times more, which is fascinating. And then you have like, of course, the pre-sale, which I love to do and just like marketing test. And I do hear think that as we are talking about about pre-sales right i think you have an amazing example here to explain about handsome chaos because you do use a survey and a marketing test before you ever launched a product in order to just build enough confidence in order to invest in this launch could you walk us through your example because i think that would be amazing yeah, for sure. So with us, we're excited as a growth team to grow our own stuff. And like the, I think the wrong path would have been like, oh, okay, let's try and make the product. We spend time and money to make the product. And then I make it after two years and then I try and sell it. It's like, wait, why would I make a product if I don't know anybody wants the freaking thing? It so will sit in like, your garage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll just collect cobwebs in my garage forever long. So we were like, let's do the opposite. What's the minimum viable test we can do to get traction? So we're like, okay, let's make some Facebook and Instagram ads. We'll make some creative. We're, we're, we're fortunate we have good designers that can Photoshop things. And then we stood up a fake Shopify website. But even before we like spend ad dollars on that, we're like, okay, actually, before we do this, let's actually survey people. So we used a tool, Pollfish. I think we spoke to 500 people and we asked some very simple questions. One was around like, are you happy with your existing hair product? Do you have this problem of greasy hair throughout the day? Would you like it to basically have a shower in, in a container? And we started to see some conviction that people aren't happy with the product. 70% are open to switching. People do have this problem. So like, okay. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. They're down to switch products. They have this problem. That was enough signal to go forward with that test of running ads to a landing page. And the question we oscillated on, it sounds obvious now, it's like, what's our metric for success? Do we do a email sign up, a pre-order, an actual conversion? We're like, you know what, let's just sell it like it exists and totally aligned with what you're saying. 
So we, we ran the ads and we were like, can we get people to buy this? And we, we ended up getting 50 conversions at unit economics that, that kind of made sense. Like, all right, now it makes sense to go down the painful, painful path of manufacturing and try to make a product. Whereas let's say that didn't happen and it failed. We just saved ourselves two or three years of time, money and all the pain. And so it's, it sounds so obvious in retrospect, but I think it's easy to go that other path. Totally. No, I love this example. And my brother did the same thing. So he's launching another e-com now. And he just like was testing a couple of international markets. But here is the lesson that we could maybe give to our audience. You still have to be patient, right? So it's the same with investing it's not as if you would be doing and like watching your meta ad stats all the time like don't watch the stock market every day because that's literally the level of nervosity but nevertheless it's very important to play with what you can lose so i always say in order to test something to legitimately test something you need at least five thousand dollars or something like that two thousand at minimum. So this is the budget that you need to invest in order to just like break through because at the beginning results will be so random. When my brother was testing this international market for an e-com product in terms of fashion and I cannot say much more right now, but like his product costed 30 bucks and CPA on the first day was 50 bucks, right? If he had weekends, if he didn't understand the economics, that the algorithm needs some time to settle, to find the right audience, he could just like give up a couple of days time. But it's a no, the budget is 2000, like whatever happens here, I'm ready to lose this and let's see what happens. You have to be patient. And that's like the other component that we haven't really talked about before, but I do think it's so important because people are panicking all the time and I see them panicking even on LinkedIn. So they are like, oh, the algorithm changed, the reach is dragged, like this is what's going on right now. And I say, it's a really long game. It's a really long game. Of course, you have to elaborate and change and learn, but like one bad day doesn't mean that this game is over, right? You have to show up and do this practice again tomorrow, hopefully smarter and better, but uh, just be willing to put in the reps. Yeah, I think you hit on something that's really important and it's this time component because we all want instant gratification. I want instant gratification with, with the experiments. We're freaking dopamine junkies, yes. Yeah. This is how we are wired. Uh, absolutely. There's a really smart CMO, Rob Sobers at Veronis. They're a publicly traded company. He's been on the podcast. With every experiment they come up with, he puts a time component of when should we expect to see results? Because they, they have with their enterprise software, they're building pipeline. So it takes a while because he's people are like, okay, give it two months for signals or six months for signals. That way, when you check in, you know, like this isn't working. Like, no, we said we give this six months to drive pipeline and that's what we're going to do. And I think if everyone's aligned there, it really helps because yeah, that, that could be horrible if you end something too early when you, in the case of the Facebook example, you don't let the algorithm learn. Have a fighting chance. If he would turn off the ends, it, that product would never have a fighting chance because he would be making this irrational panic yeah. decision. No, no, totally agree. And, and I love that. And there's, Another thing that, that you have that I really love, honestly, like the visuals you've made for your book, I might need to talk to you about stealing some of these to put into my presentation. Just go. I will give you 100% credit. But this idea of, okay, it's like, okay, 
we're validating this idea, we're getting signals. Okay, crap, how do I go out and get my first customers? There's two categories that we could talk about, demand generation and demand capture, right? How do you like go where there is demand and capture it versus, hey, how do I create demand for this? And can you walk through how you think through those approaches in those early days with the go-to-market strategy? First question, is there a market for it? Yes, no. If there is no market, you might want to build it. But do you have the resources to build it, to do the demand generation part of the equation? Yes or no? This is your decision right there. If there is a market for it, like the easiest possible thing would be to capture some of the existing demand. However, the devil is in the details. So there might be a lot of competition and you would have to either piggyback on the adjacent category. So to just like piggyback on some, let's say who is not direct competitor, or just like say that, oh man, this is like getting a little bit insane in terms of Google ads, maybe we should invest like in content generation. There is no clear answer and there are also different categories, right? So for example, with some categories, for example, if you are purchasing a car, my husband and I were just like buying Mercedes Class C and it took us four months in order to decide. And this this purchase would be impossible to attribute, right? So we visited the salon five times. We went to the test rides. We were, of course, like very intrigued with the ads. I love their imagery, but like digital attribution wise, this purchase would be impossible to track because it just <laughs> had offline and online digital um, touch points. And I mean, it's just like this notion, how badly do you need something to happen really soon? Because if you have three months of lifeline, of course, I would prefer demand capturing because you don't have six months to invest in SEO into content strategy because pragmatically it will never happen. So you have to be like a little bit more on the marketplaces with maybe partnerships, with maybe like some distribution deals. So whatever can make you get quicker. But if you are playing a long game, and if we are like creating your own leverage, I do think that assets such as communities and content strategy and SEO strategy and just like repeatable purchasing and like marketing funnel is a tremendous, tremendous resource to have. So it depends really of who you are. If you badly need the next like 100K, the story is probably more on the demand capture side and just like making sure that you are triggering impulse purchases. But if you can value this in six months or more, you would be making different choices. Yeah, it's I, I love the framework of approaching that, that way. Like, hey, what what should you think through with demand capture, demand generation? How much time do you have? Like, how hot is the market and willingness to pay? Because if it's demand capture, that means People are going to Google, they're searching for it. So be good at SEO, oh, be good so, at Google sorry, Ads. Sorry, 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 sorry. I love you just saying this because there's also like an additional framework that I completely forgot, sorry. But are you optimizing for profit or adoption? Because with some products, you really just want to sell it out so that it creates network effect and there is like a lot of buzz and virality and maybe like the window of opportunity is very narrow. Forgive me again for interrupting you, but I get very weirdly passionate about my ideas. <laughs> but, <laughs> but on the other hand, like you could be optimizing for profit, right? Because I always say there are at least two different ways to make 10,000K. You can sell 100 products for $100 or 
you can sell like two products for five hundred uh, for for five thousand dollars. So it's a pricing and business model decision. But again, like don't hate the player, hate the game if you have to. <laughs> oh man, so true. And I hear that some of the thoughts that people like, wait, do I go for? adoption and market share do i go for profit some of the rules you hear not rules are like what people say is if it's a new category or new market you want to own it so it's not about profits in the early days it's like take yep. up gobble up as much market share as possible you could be like selling dead loss yeah exactly and then others it could be you know what if if you're second to the game if you're owning a segment it's more about profits right but again it totally depends on like are you vc backed are you bootstrapped there's different ways to to go about it so very cool no, but you I can apply this framework to e-com as well, because like in e-com, you know how it is, you are like probably giving away tons of products to just like enchant those influencers. And it's just like about creating this critical mess, right? And even if you are bootstrapping and are like very stretched on the resources, you would be willing to take this sacrifice because you know that it would help you create this critical mess. And this is just like, I know it's very difficult to explain these concepts, but you see how other people are doing this and you kind of anticipate these dynamics, right? So if you are selling 20 units a day, it's impossible to expect that like a heavy referral and recommendation and virality will happen because you're not just not hitting the critical mass just yet. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So I want to hear, like, what are some examples or case studies of companies, of businesses that have done this really well? I think some of the best ways to learn is from examples. They're super sticky. What are some that come to mind where you're like, okay, people need to like take note of that? Yeah, I think the best one was ChatGPT literally because it like literally skyrocketed their users in a couple of months, right? So they launched last November and like in February they had a couple of million of users and it just like their growth skyrocketed. And especially I am working a lot with tech companies and everybody is like talking about this cold start problem and product-led and whatnot. And they just went back to first principles so let's create a really good product let's give it up for free like the virality was freaking crazy just like the level of innovation that they put into the product it completely blew my mind because if you compare this with vr or something like this for example and i love these innovation examples because you know like google glasses or just like <laughs> some weird <laughs> apple stuff that happened recently in terms of vr their adoption is so damn slow but like ChatGPT, for example exploded and we can learn a lot about this. I don't think that they even did any paid marketing. Maybe they have fans or sponsorships or something like that, but I've never, ever, ever seen an ad for ChatGPT, right? So it was an absolutely phenomenal and mind-blowing example for me of just like how important the product is, the quality of the product, and just like making sure that you give before you take back, right? They only issued like their paid version a couple of months later. And I do think that that was like one hell of a genius GTM strategy that like completely blew my mind. If you go more into the B2C perspective, and I don't know, like the exact verticals that you are most passionate about, but I'm very big on gaming and just like 
computers, everything that related. We could talk about fashion, but maybe you could tell more about fashion than I do at this point. But anyways, it's all about like creating these hype influencers. I cannot tell you which company exactly that was, but the strategy that we were doing was that we paid huge amount of money to a couple of influencers that had to launch on the same date. And of course, we had our machinery ready, right? There were pre-orders, there was everything was super good. And our main objective was just like to create this fear of missing out that like we sold out on the first day and they can just like sign up for another batch. So it's all about this magnitude, creating this momentum and this fear of missing out. I do think this is really important with Generation C, for example, and those guys care deeply about values as well. So that's maybe the third aspect that you can talk about maybe more in the details. But yeah, just like to create this initial buzz around the launch and center it everything to appear bigger than you are is very, very much in the DNA of the GTN that I believe in. Yeah, there's one that I I just was I interviewed the CEO of Zencaster, which that's what you and I are no, using. No, that right was now. the last episode. I saw it on LinkedIn today. Congratulations! Or that, yeah, he he was impressive. He had one that's probably worthy of your book, where yeah. he started Zencaster not as a podcast tool, but it was more so for people recording music, and nobody wanted it. And the funny thing is, people are like, "Hey, you should do this for podcasts," and podcasters they would lose subscribers because the audio quality would be so bad back in the day that people were like, I can't listen to this anymore. So what he did was people were like begging for a product like this. So he offered it for free. And you know how he would find customers? He would go to Twitter search and he'd look for people like roasting a podcast host because the audio quality was so bad. He'd jump into the conversation and be like, hey, use Zencaster for free. He did that for two years, had 2,000 free customers, he then flipped it to paid, and all of a sudden, he got like 20K a month in uh, MRR. And so no, I, I just like... love that of like hacking the conversation. Like, where do you, where's the, like, to your point, where's their demand gen? Because there's a clear problem. But th- that dude, super impressive on what they did in the early days for it. Kind of to your point, going to the early adopters, go where the problems are. He had close proximity to it because he's in all these audio communities. Perfect. He's kind of doing your playbook right there. No, perfect. I like doing things that don't scale sometimes until you can scale. And it reminded me just like, you know, that I'm a fierce listener of your podcast as well. It reminded me of a ConvertKit SEO episode as well, right? He was also like DMing on Twitter with people. And it's just like, you know how I think about this? Nobody ever will work as hard for you as you will as a founder. So So I cannot expect from anybody that like they would go through the lens that I'm willing to take. And it's an impossible expectation to portray to other people. But if you're not going to do it, who's going to do it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and he did the same strategies you said where he would do like, you know, men's fashion bloggers in New York that need email automation system just for them. And he did that for... LA, San Francisco, then women's fashion bloggers. And it's, you know, it it takes a lot of work, but guess what? That beachhead approach can work when done the the right way. No, and just like the story. So I maybe like jumped a little bit to a hat in the history of that company, but they were producing like liquid seismic for computing. This is like the fancy looking gaming computers that we love. So the first prototype of the product was made from the pump of the aquarium. 
So they literally repurposed this from like a fish tank and they gave it to the computer and call it like liquid cooling. So at the beginning, like there were just like these tiny segments of mods. So these are people who love constructing their own computers and they are like really intelligent guys. And from there on, later on, they expanding into the gaming vertical by just like harvesting on their technology supremacy and just like this look and feel that they created in a segment which was more 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 on the left side of this innovation um, curve that we were talking about so early adopters and these are still like diehard brand fans of the brand oh that's cool i love seeing moves and pivots like that well what did i ask you that i should have asked you I don't know. Usually people love to talk about pricing with me, but we haven't gone there. (laughs) (laughs) No, but nevertheless, um, maybe just like a final note for the audience regarding pricing in GTM, you are kind of constrained within like 20 to 30% of the wiggle room from your competitors, right? So whenever there is a burning problem, there is a solution to it. And solution for all you care could be a spreadsheet or freaking not doing anything about this. So you have some natural limits for price anchoring before you grow stronger. And it's really important, not just like to research your competitors, because, you know, it's not like this typical microeconomics curve. If you are cheaper, people are going to buy more of this doesn't work like this, you have to be very rock solid about positioning and catering towards specific audience. And sometimes the value, and I do see pricing as this unit of value transfer is not always tangible. So idealistically, we would be talking about, okay, you make like that amount of money, I take 20% of it. Okay, good, deal done. But in real life doesn't work like this. And sometimes like the value comes in different shaman forums like people could form identity and feeling of belongingness with your brand they could feel more psychologically secure as you have like very friendly customer support right so don't portray the value freaking ask your customers and just like go from there what are the most important features and most important characteristics of your value offer that you have in place and just like do a little bit of a pricing experimentation and pricing experimentation can be done really smart. So it's like, I have an A polish here, Jim, would you pay $10 for it? Okay. Would you pay $13 for it? Okay. Would you pay 50? I don't know. (laughs) So, okay. Why? Why, What's stopping you here? It can be like much more profound, just like what is the volume of the problem that you are solving. And I do don't think that this cutie-cutter pricing of just like copying your competitors a little bit is the right way to go because competing on the lowest price is the race to the bottom. And this is not how we want to position ourselves. Yeah, pricing is so hard. I I like that initial framework of looking at competitors and those kind of guardrails of like the 20 to 30% buffer, assuming there's some comparability in features and and usage or whatnot. No, that's super helpful. So I think the book, when this goes live, will either be live, it'll be launching the next day. Where can we send people? Because like I said, you've got some killer graphics in there. I'm going to post some on LinkedIn and like give you a shout out because these have really resonated with me when thinking through like how to like think through building your MVP, how to think through demand capture versus demand generation. What, What should the process be when going through this? I'm I'm a nerd for frameworks and you've 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 got them packed in the book, which is very cool. But where can we point people? 
more coming, more coming. So join us on gtmstrategies.com. There will be all the frameworks, all the resources that you can just like get there. And if you want to get a physical copy of the book or a Kindle version, there will be available on Amazon. Or you know what? Just connect with me on LinkedIn and we can have one hell of a combo about pricing, about early segments, and we'll just spill some tea. Well, that's awesome. Well, Maja, I'm excited for the launch. I, if I know you and how hard you work, it's going to go phenomenally well. So good luck with that. But uh, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate you. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where Remotely Talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.